This is Jared Fraser with 2% for Conservation, and you are listening to the Urban to Country podcast. Welcome to the Urban to Country podcast, where we talk to outdoor enthusiasts about life, hunting, and how to make everyday epic. Hey guys and gals, welcome back to the Urban to Country podcast. I am so happy to have you here. On this week's episode, I sit down with Jared Frazier. Jared is the executive director for 2% for Conservation. We had an awesome conversation, but perhaps the best part about this whole podcast is that I didn't lose the audio like I thought I did. When I went to put this together, I couldn't find the audio anywhere. But as you can tell, I was able to recover it, and I am thrilled to be able to share this conversation with you. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this conversation with Jared Frazier. Why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself, where you're from, and yeah, go from there. Okay. So I'm Jared Frazier. I am executive director at 2% for Conservation. I am originally from Wisconsin, but uh, in 07, came out to Montana for the first time, went to the Rocky Mountain front, was wrecked, and have basically been here since <laughs> with a few short indiscrepancies at the very beginning. But uh, raised my family out here, um, live here in Manhattan, Montana, which is a small ag town with one four-way stop and we would not have it any other way. Um, I found that out driving into town today. I stopped at what I assumed incorrectly was a four-way stop, and the little old lady across from me got very unhappy with me that I had stopped. She, Yeah, there's a few that have, in passing conversation, uh, said that uh, when Manhattan gets big, they're going to be chaining themselves to four-way stops, make sure (laughs) stoplights don't go in. (laughs) I might join them. I don't know. Um, but I mean, we're only 15 minutes from Bozeman, but you, you wouldn't know it. No. Um, there's conservation easements on either side of town for the most part, but it is growing a little bit and we're just thankful to have a town that kind of really still cares about their school and everything going on here. It's still small enough. You can be a part of it. Yeah. Love that. Yeah. Uh, we were having this conversation yesterday. I was helping film some stuff and, and one of the questions that the interviewer was asking was what about the Rocky Mountains, you know, inspired you or, or changed your life? And you said that it kind of it said you it wrecked you. Yeah. So yeah. Wh- what what was it about the, the Rockies that did that? So to you? I was at the time teaching outdoor ed in Iowa and working at a small camp doing their program stuff up in northeast Iowa, which is a beautiful there's bluffs. It's along the Mississippi River. Um, and I thought I had found a place that I wanted to, you know, settle down. Right. Um, and I came out here and was up along the front near Augusta. Um, and there's a small one year, uh, Bible wilderness college up there and they, they do summer camps and stuff this summer. They had to like get kids because all the flooding, they had to use Chinooks to get the kids out. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's right up against the Bob Marshall wilderness, which I had never been to a proper wilderness before, Uh um, had elk hunted twice in, or or three times in New Mexico and Colorado, uh, with family, but you know, those were short trips and whatnot. But uh, as an adult coming out and seeing just this open space, um, that anyone 
could go to and to have people go, yeah, as a U.S. citizen, you own this. And looking, you know, from the top of Steamboat Mountain West and seeing not a single light for a long ways. It's pretty um, awe-inspiring. Yeah, and it only took, you know, like three hours to hike to get to the top there. And here's all this just and, – and, and there were uh, herds of bighorn sheep down in the saddle, and it was September, so you could hear elk bugling down in the valley. And I realized I had to live near that. Yeah. Um, so I uh, went back and fulfilled the rest of the contract that I had <laughs> and then uh, have not lived anywhere but the mountains since. Yeah. So bought a house in Manhattan. We were trying for, I, I think my wife mentioned before uh, we started, uh, f- you know, we, we tried for five years to, to get a house here in the Bozeman area. Um, and our kids, uh, right now they're outside. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the, the Gallatin River is a 10-minute walk that way and oh, a 15 minute bike ride that way um and public land hunting and fishing are right there so uh, it's y- you just don't have that in many places of of the country uh in the i mean the rockies are big but opportunities to settle down are uh, not as prevalent so we're really thankful that's cool i think there's just certain people that are are born to move to the mountains and live in the mountains. And I think if you're that type of person, you'll never be happy until you do it. It's, it's weird. Um, I, I left, uh, that school and I felt like I was, even though I went back to Northern Wisconsin for a little bit, you know, to be with family. Um, uh, it felt like I had left home instead of returning home. Um, and, and we still feel that way, uh, when we go back and, and visit family, yeah, the families are there and that's what we go back for, but the region is not, I do miss walleye. I miss fish fries. <laughs> I miss, uh, fish and musky. You know, there are some elements of the region that I miss, but, um, when we crossed the border back into Montana, even our first year of marriage, it felt like we were home, which yeah. was crazy. Yeah. And I, I can totally relate to that. Uh, growing up out on the East Coast, there are definitely things I miss. And I miss getting to see my folks frequently. Mm-hmm. Um, but the second either I step off a plane or we cross the border, I get this physical feeling yeah. of, okay, this is it. I'm I'm home. I feel I feel uh, whole again. Uh, I'm not I'm not looking around for <laughs> mountains and forests. But yeah, although I do miss I do miss good seafood. That is hard yeah. to find. <laughs> yeah, that's the same with the Friday night fish fries. Yeah, you know, it's it's in every town in in Wisconsin every Friday night, and uh, you know perch and walleye, guaranteed, and it's going to be good. Um, there there is a couple from my hometown of Rhinelander that tra- transplanted to Big Sky, Montana, oh, cool. and they were doing it there for a while nice. when we were living in Big Sky. That's so awesome. That gave us just this little piece, but we were okay if we missed it because we were out snowshoeing or something. Right. Yeah. Like, it, that that physical like calming of crossing I, I don't know if there's like a a super tramp gene <laughs> you know that that people have um i have this conversation with with other folks who transplanted from different places either you know a year ago or 50 years ago mm-hmm. who you know will will never be called montanans i don't think by folks Probably who not. are born here like my kids will be like dad you're not a montana <laughs> but uh it, 
can't can't explain it. It, it. The further away I get from open spaces and wilderness, the more my blood pressure goes up, and uh, you know, it's yeah. just it, got to be here. Yeah, and you know, I'm I am very grateful that there are different people who enjoy the things that I don't. I mm-hmm. I went to New York uh, City uh, two years ago for just a, a meeting, and I was I was not happy the entire time I was there. I felt claustrophobic everyone in my opinion i've heard this isn't true from other people but in my opinion everybody i met was grouchy and irritable (laughs) um i just i didn't really enjoy new york city but i know people that love that and that and that really feeds them and i'm so glad that there are people like that so Mm -hmm. there's less people out here you Mm -hmm. know in the mountains with me (laughs) but one of the first things that lets me know i've i've kind of left home is uh the expensive for dress clothing. Oh yeah. Yeah. Certain yeah. Name. Now we have that in the outdoor industry for sure. Yep. You know, that exists. Uh, those of us who still hunt and kind of ripped flannel are, are becoming a, a, a little less of a mainstay, uh, as far as at least in the public eye, but, um, the, the expensive certain brands of clothing that you have to wear or cologne, Cologne. Talk to me about cologne. Cologne. I haven't this, noticed this, is this a yet. Big, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So if you get on a plane and you smell cologne when you're leaving Bozeman, they don't have a 406 phone number. <laughs> they just don't. <laughs> More than yeah. likely. Um, or they're, you know, a 15-year-old boy who discovered ass. Right. Yeah, you know, one, exactly. One of the two. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then you go to cities and stuff and, like, you start, like, people have, sm- like, perfume and stuff. Like, what is this? You don't Man. smell like a backpack. You know? <laughs> That's not that new boot smell. Yeah, yeah. Where's that Danner smell? Yeah. Um, it, it, that was that's like one of the the key indicators for me that I've gotten back home is you just stop smelling people's fragrance. I'm gonna have to pay attention to that next time I I go east. I haven't really, but that's true. Like I think about. It, I don't remember the last time I put cologne on. I yeah yeah. Huh. Um, it's a weird thing to talk about on an outdoor podcast. You know. But. We talk about everything on here. I mean, it does. There's nothing off ba- out of bounds. Oh. Uh, well, it's talking about the clothing thing, my, I am truly 100% convinced that the only reason that I've belonged to conservation groups is so that I can stock my t-shirt, my t-shirt drawer, like t-shirts and hats, t-shirts and hats. I don't yep. need to go shopping. I pay my 35 bucks a year to the different yep. orgs and they dress me for the next two years <laughs> <laughs> should go in my closet. That's like all that exists in there. Well, yeah. I laughed when I walked in cause the first thing in Jared's front door is boxes of t-shirts and hats. And yeah. 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 And, and yeah, yeah. Every org it, it has the conversation of we are not a t-shirt and hat <laughs> company, but um, you know, there is something to be said about wearing, what you care about, yep. you know, um, which uh, this goes to a, another little just kind of weird nuance of the conservation world. Um, there are banquets and stuff where you're supposed to dress up. Right. Yep. Which I find hilarious. Yep. And I'm not the only one. Um, so when I first started uh, going to more of them, was talking to some guys who were supposedly in the industry um, and they're like, yeah, make sure you're wearing a suit for this. Make sure you're, you know, you've huh. got these. Sh- and, 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 and so I did that. Never done that in my life before intentionally. Like I made career choices. Yeah. So that, <laughs> that would never happen. Yep. Um, 
I, I do own several suits, but they, they're in, it, you know, they're intended for, okay, this suit is for at 10,000 feet in this kind <laughs> of weather has these, po- you know, um, and this one's for hot swampy, you know, right. hunting. I mean, they're not actual suits. They're, they're yeah. hunting kits or climbing kits or whatever. Um, I've bought them, but not for a boardroom or anything like that. And so you're not trying to impress anybody. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, the, the goal is to not be seen. Right. Yeah. And then <laughs> you're supposed to wear this stuff to be seen in a certain way. So I was doing that and I did this other podcast with, uh, Jonathan Hart, who's co-founder of Sitka and Kenton Cruz, co-founder of first light. And they both were like t-shirts, dude. Why, why aren't you wearing a t-shirt? Yeah. And it was it was at one of the banquets we were at, and they're like, wear what you want to wear. You didn't. You're not in the outdoors to go and play dress up, right? Wear a t-shirt. Yep. Yeah, and I I remember this last year having this same conversation with my wife because I'm on the the local board for our RMEF chapter, mm-hmm. and we we're getting the banquet together, and I I conned my wife into coming and helping. Yeah. And her first question was, "Well, what should I wear?" I was like, "Look." Most people at this are going to be down to earth. They're going to be wearing T-shirts and jeans. There's going to be those people that think that they need to look good, and so they're going to dress up. Don't be like those people. Just everyone else who's down to earth and chill is going to be wearing T-shirts and jeans and ball caps, and they're going to be there having a good time and not worrying about what other people think about them and just there to take part (laughs) in the activity. So, yeah, it's – I like those down to earth people that aren't worried about what, what other people are thinking yeah. about them, just being themselves. That's, that's yeah. what I like. I mean, we're, if you are working in conservation or on the product side of the outdoor industry or the service side of outdoor industry, you run into the suit and tie events. Right. But what you find is the guys who are like making that a requirement are typically from suit and tie industries who happen to have a lot of money and kind of, want to not feel like they're the only ones yeah dressing that way yeah we we do what we do for a reason and to waste money on suits and stuff like i uh, there was one event i went to i had to rent a tux this next year <laughs> i'm never going there again <laughs> there was like a little little table of all the conservation people and there's like shane mahoney and a couple other you know uh, prophets of conservation sitting yeah. at this table and we we're it was like we were all sitting at the kids table it was it was <laughs> hilarious and sad and wonderful and awful. All, wonderful for me because I got these people to myself. Right, you know? yeah. But awful at the same time because, you know, you got the execs from all these big industries who don't even know who he is. Yeah. Um, and it's because he wasn't wearing a fancy enough suit. My life goal is to look like Shane Mahoney one day. That is... If I could I, never grow that beard. I I don't think I could, but I want to. It's there's, a goal I'll probably never reach, but it is a goal nonetheless. There's also the gravitas in the voice. Oh, I'll never be able to match that. I ran into him. I was coming back from an, uh, a media event, and I had a connecting flight in Tennessee. And turns out there had been a big RMEF uh, chapter event there, and he had been at it. And ran into him in the airport of all places in a state, you know, because he's Canadian. I live in Montana. And he goes, Mr. Frazier, so good to see you. If <laughs> everyone greeted good. you like Shane Mahoney greets you, <laughs> you feel awesome you feel all awesome. the time. <laughs> uh, yeah, he, he, uh, he has that orator gene. Like, there's yeah. no other way to say it. I mean, he was born 
to do what he does, yeah. which is pretty incredible. Yeah, guys, guys who can talk like that, another who who is able to communicate in such a way uh, that you always you just want to listen to him. Um, we need more yeah. of those, I think. And uh, some good example or a good example would be like uh, Gray Thornton over at the Sheep Foundation. He came on the radio the other day on NPR and like instantly was like, who's talking? Oh, I know that. Okay. And yeah. it's a, vo- you know, it's a voice that begs you to listen. Um, we need more of that. Yeah. I think uh, it took me forever to get rid of my Northern Wisconsin accent. <laughs> <laughs> Someday I hope to get to Mahoney level. <laughs> Uh, well, actually, that's a, a really good segue talking about things we need more of. Um, let's talk about 2% for conservation. Yeah. And I, so I had two questions. One is how'd you get involved with 2%? Like, I think most of us who start working in conservation, it wasn't like the plan. Like we didn't mm-hmm. grow up saying, I want to save trees and mountains. So I'm interested to hear that, but also I'm interested to hear kind of what 2% is and the mission and kind of the framework yeah. for the organization. So whichever one of those you want to tackle first, I'll kind of, I, I don't know which one is more natural for you to talk about first. Yeah. So my intro in is pretty quick. Um, I had been and still am volunteering with local RMEF chapter uh, here in the Bozeman area. Um, nowhere near at the level of hours that most of the chapter committee people are. Um, I've also uh, am still volunteer board member, uh, for the Montana chapter of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. Um, I volunteer with other projects with uh, stream cleanups and whatnot whenever I can. Um, uh, for me personally, doing those things is in some way, you know, I'm not rolling in dough, but I do have time on my weekends and whatnot. And I want my kids to, you know, I've got a, I've got a six-year-old daughter, a seven-year-old son. I want them to have that just be part of their life. A lot of people have different traditions that are just a part of their family life. Uh, mine, growing up, involved a lot of hunting and fishing and 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 uh, you know watching the Packers and things like that. We don't watch football. We don't really watch TV in our house. Um, There's so no reason to watch the Packers anyway. I mean, mm. <laughs> careful. Do we don't we don't want to go there. <laughs> oh. Oh man, that's an easy derail for a Wisconsinite. Two percent, two percent. Back, back to two percent. Yeah. yeah. So uh, you know, just having it be part of our family life. Yeah. Um, was super important for me. My my son was on fe- doing fence poles at like two years old. That's and, cool. And same with my daughter. Um, every time they go down to the river, they're grabbing trash. Like it's just it's part of our family culture. My wife grew up with a heavy conservation minded father who runs a dairy a small dairy farm. And, you know, his his land, he manages himself to be great for the wildlife and whatnot of his own volition. So it was part of her ethos as well. Um, in that, uh, ended up at quite a few things that 2% supporting businesses were at, uh, 2% supporting media folks were at. 2% is only about three years old right now. Um, and, and so when it was launched, uh, Actually, when I took over, found out I was the eighth person to sign up um, just because it was it was a mindset I've had um, in large part. My my mom's huge on wildlife. 
um she's got like this massive bird and butterfly sanctuary she's like that's cool ri- i mean not like a physical structure but that's yeah. what she's kind of created uh at, at my folks place uh, and my dad uh took me hunt- hunting and fishing from the time i was in a diaper like i was a couple months old and they drilled an ice fishing hole about six inches deep so that they could set me in it and i wouldn't roll around <laughs> while they were chasing tip-ups um that's awesome yeah uh and that's a cool way to grow up yeah yeah and so uh, you know that was always a part of it but the taking on the role and becoming the executive director in large part was due to randy newberg um about a year ago uh yeah it would have been about a year ago uh here this august i was headed to go sign another uh web services client that's what I was doing as, as my full time, um, had my own business with that. And it was a client that I did not want to sign, but, you know, needed to pay the bills, but someone who aggressively unpleasant, I guess I would, I would, I knew that's they a were nice gonna, way of saying that they were going to be that kind of client. Gotcha. And, um, it was early in the morning too. It was like seven thirty in the morning and he calls and I'm thinking who died? Oh, yeah. You know, like <laughs> you get a call from Randy at 7:30 in the morning. Um and and my affiliation with him was, you know, basically he'd be volunteering at events that I was helping put on. You know, gotcha. he he'd come and speak or uh he'd come and sign, you know, uh DVD copies or something like that, try to draw more people to raise more funds for conservation groups. And he he said, "Where are you, what are you doing?" I said, "Well, I'm headed to, you know, yada yada yada." He goes, "Cancel that. You need to go and have an interview." Um Two percent's looking to hire somebody. It's like, oh, they're growing. Cool. What are, what position? Executive director. Oh, oh, <laughs> oh that kind of interview. Uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so when interviewed uh, for it with uh, the board president Jeff Spazito, uh, he runs Stone Glacier now uh, in in Bozeman. Stone Glacier backpacks uh, used to be at Sika, and he was the founder of Two Percent. Okay. Um, did all the legwork and the paperwork and the you know, building out the first uh, end of things and building out the initial board and whatnot. Basically, it was kind of turnkey, like, hey, come in and run this and grow it. Uh, and so what we do is certify businesses and individuals that give 1% of time and 1% of money to conservation work. So that can be, um, as far as conservation work, it could be orgs like uh, Montana Wildlife Federation or BHA, uh, Wild Sheep Foundation, Trout Unlimited, um, Safari Club International. Really, we are Switzerland when it comes to conservation. Um, however, groups that we can't put towards that uh, uh, so that one percent of time or dollars are groups that uh, actively fund political campaigns. Legally, we can't do that as a certification org. Right. Um, any because you're a five hundred one c three. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and there's another bracket we may qualify for on the certification end of things once we're a little bit bigger, but it still wouldn't allow that. Right. Um, so that uh, that actively removes certain groups that tend to have more contention around them. Yeah. Uh, because of funding uh, different different uh, political campaigns and whatnot. We also uh, cannot list groups that are actively undermining conservation efforts. So. Right now, there's a couple conservation groups who have very popular names that the moment I say what they're doing, you'll know who they are. Most of the listeners will, too. 
Um, for instance, in California, there's one group in particular trying to remove sheep guzzlers from uh, uh, wildlife areas. Those sheep guzzlers are there because all the people went and built condos where the water is. Right. So yeah. you remove the guzzlers. Yes, you're making that wilderness more wildernessy, but we are the ones who caused the problem. Yeah. So this is this is a human-made band-aid. Well, there's there's groups actively trying to shut that down. Simple googling for anyone will tell you who they are. <laughs> so we can't, you know, we can't include that. Right. You know, we can't. Yeah. Um, so what what we count for one percent of time for individuals is twenty one hours. So for you as an individual member, which you are, I think you got your packet in the I mail am. last week. Yep, I yeah. did. Yeah, uh, proud member. Yeah, and I know you hit it with, with the hours you do. For individuals, it's honor system. Otherwise, I'd have to get a CPA license and I think an attorney's license as well to look at people's tax returns and whatnot. Yeah. For individuals, it's honor system. So that's 21 hours a year. And that's, can I interject yeah. real quick? So yeah. I was pretty sure just doing uh, what I do that I had hit it. And so I, I felt really confident signing up and whatnot. But then I started thinking about it and, and just within what I do as a volunteer for RMEF, I did a... 12 hour day, day of the banquet. Yep. And then we have six meetings leading yep. up to that, that I'm are sure each an hour and a half long hour to two hours long. And yeah. then set up the day before was about four or five hours. So right there, that's yep. over 21 hours. So for yep. anybody, any individuals that think, Oh, I could never do that. Just sit down and think about it. You probably are doing more then you realize you're doing and you probably have already hit your 21 hours oh, yeah. as we speak. So that's just and my that's, personal that's plug. without being in like a major leadership position. Yeah. Which those, uh, knowing, you know, from, from being a volunteer at these things, yeah. you know, I, I, I did the same calculations, you know, when yeah. I first signed up, um, the average Montana BHA board member does over 300 hours of volunteer work a year. Yeah. Uh, the average RMEF member in, in Montana does over 20 hours, yeah. which, so on, on that note for an individual, that 21 hours, if you'd put that across our individual membership, which right now is sitting around 500, you're looking at 10,000 hours. That's awesome. That's if, incredible. If you're a conservation group and you're having to pay for those hours, like let's say for a fence pole, you have to go hire a contractor. You know, you're looking at the average contractor hours of 30 to 35 bucks if it's cheap and, and competitively bid. That's a lot of money. You know, that's that's a pile of money that conservation orgs don't have to pay because yeah. of volunteers. Um, but the, the saying is still true, 90 or, or 10 percent of people are doing 90 percent of the work. So that's right. that's part of our mission is to change that. So it's 21 hours uh, for one person is one percent of your time over a year and then one percent of income. Um, and the average American making 50,000 a year, you know, that's 500 bucks. Sorry. I thought I put this on silent. It's all good. Um, that was my phone. <laughs> um, that's, that's, that's 500 bucks, not 50 bucks. That's 500 bucks uh, a year, which we count, what we count towards that are individual memberships at nonprofits, uh, nonprofit conservation groups or donations of things or, uh, putting money in at a banquet, you know, uh, raffles, things like that. We count that because those are fundraising tools that conservation groups use. Um, even if you're, if you teach hunters ed, like I do, you end up buying, you know, dud rifle shells, Yeah, you know, for showing it that counts. 
um, buying targets for going and teaching, buying fishing supplies for Big Brothers, Big Sisters program or for scouts, things like that. Um, we want to honor the people who are doing that. Um, again, for individuals, it's honor system. But if someone goes to fishandwildlife.org, clicks on the individual member thing, signs up, and lies about it, that is the worst hunting and yeah. fishing karma <laughs> in the world. You will never draw the sheep tag that you've been you putting will, in for. You it. will never draw your sheep tag. You'll end up getting, you know, the Lone Star tick, even if you're <laughs> up in Canada, um, and probably Zika, you know. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> uh, that so, Lone Star tick is freaky. Yeah. Not to derail us again, but yeah, I'd heard about that thing recently. I don't want anything to do with that. Yeah. So I've got limes. Oh, do you? You don't want that. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, there there were some uh, outdoor indiscrepancies I had as a kid, and if I believed in karma, you know that's, that's probably why. Yeah, it it disproportionate tick diseases, mosquito diseases disproportionately affect those of us who love to spend time outdoors. Yeah, and it like gets you with stuff that keeps you from doing things outdoors. It's so frustrating, nuts. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, that's the individual membership. Twenty one hours is one percent of your time, and then one percent of your income. You can sign up at fishandwildlife.org. I don't know how we got that URL, but I love it. It's awesome. And it's on our system. Um, for businesses, there is a proper certification process. So there's an application, which is pretty easy to fill out. And then we require a CPA note or tax documents. I prefer the note from the CPA, from the accountant, because it's usually one paragraph saying, here was the gross sales that came in. Here's the value of what was donated out. And just showing that it's more than 1%. Um, also for businesses, we only require 21 hours, not per employee, but across the company. So the, the, the reason why we do that, the reason why we don't require 1% of every employee's time is because when you get to very large companies, which are our goal, we do have a few, but you know, we want to be, you know, we want people to go into Walmart and see our certification on on a shampoo bottle or something like that someday right um but if you were to require that across a large company you have to hire someone just to keep track of that and right at that yeah. point that's at minimum thirty five thousand dollars not going to conservation so uh the 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 high value in having businesses come on is uh for the conservation groups is helping helping with with retention of donation dollars. So uh, as, as your business maybe gets sold or grows, you know, to keep your certification, you need to maintain that 1% of time, 1% of dollars. Um, but then also it's, it's helping businesses create a culture where giving back is just part of what they do. And it's a baseline for them. 1% of time, 1% of dollars is pretty easy to communicate across a company. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's a pretty good recruiting tool for certain types of individuals as well. Yeah. If you're a business that does that and you're recruiting people who are like-minded that way, it helps you keep control over your company culture Yeah, too. Absolutely. So, uh, with that, we, we, uh, do not distribute that 1% of sales. We certify that it's already happened. So that's, that's a super important part. A lot of people think that they send us 1% of sales. No, that is not how it works. Uh, we certify that you are doing that. So if you're a clothing company, that may, may mean that you are donating a lot of product for raffles, which you and I are both working on banquets and whatnot as volunteers. That's where all that stuff comes from. Right, yeah. Um, 
and we know what kind of impactful fundraiser it is. Uh, if you're a service company, like let's say you, you own a landscaping company, it may mean donating time in your skid steer, going and helping with a fence pole somewhere or doing a stream reclamation thing that normally would cost hundreds of dollars per hour just to have you there. Um, it may be that, uh, uh, for instance, you're, you're mountain ops and you're putting our logo on every single package that you have, you know, with your non-GMO and all your other, you know, made in USA uh, stuff. Uh, but you're donating that product for things like at the Total Archery Challenge this last weekend up in Big Sky. Yeah. Uh, which they donated a pile of that. They donate so much stuff. It is mind-blowing. Yes. Mean, they, I know they've donated within the last year to Montana Wildlife Federation hundreds and hundreds of dollars worth of products. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. we're small. Like, we're not, we're not in the public eye like, a total archery challenge event. It's astounding. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's, it's podcast confessions time. (laughs) Um, when I first heard about them, um, you know, I was looking at like who really liked them and stuff. And I try not now. I try not to be a, a judge book by its cover kind of guy. Sure. Yeah. But, uh, I was like flat bills. Yeah. You know, flat bill hats. Like, oh, that guy's got his hat on backwards at a trad shoot. <laughs> and I found out like a lot of guys at trad shoots have their hats on backwards. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I was, I was pretty judgmental. And I actually, uh, the first time I met them, I had to apologize. I was like, you know, I just, you know, you, you guys, you know, I, I didn't know you. And, and they are the most genuine, giving, uh, uh, generous, humble, wonderful people. Yep. And I was a dick. <laughs> I, you know, and I wasn't like going around saying nasty things about him, but I was, I was not a good guy. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, I, and that, that was before 2%, uh, before, you know, having them as a business member, a certified mm-hmm. business member, I discovered that about them, that they were just wonderful people. And there, I, I feel like in the outdoor industry, there's a lot of tribalism just like there is in any. Oh industry. yeah. Yeah. You know, you're literally wearing certain, uniforms by like camo pattern and whatnot but i love uh what uh jonathan at you know co-founder sitka said conservation is not a competition it's a great quote and uh a couple weeks ago uh we certified dark mountain which is a competitor of mountain ops and i was talking about a week ago with jordan harbison one of the co-founders of mountain ops i was like hey we uh you know just to let you know we we've certified one of your competitors he goes that's amazing that's awesome that was just right away not like oh tell me you know right away that is awesome so glad to hear it i hope we start getting more of them like that kind of mindset we need a lot more of that and so that's why we exist we exist not only to be a a funding uh retention tool and a volunteer hour uh, growing tool for conservation orgs uh, and causes and projects and hunters ed and all that stuff. We exist for that, but we also exist for a culture shift within the outdoor industry because in the eighties and nineties, it was companies suing each other over patents, patents of clo- uh, camel patterns, clothing patterns, both, uh, you know, designs, rifle designs, I mean, it was, if you look at the legal records, it was lawsuit, 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 and lots of bad blood. And a lot of the old guards still is out there and hate each other. Uh, I get nasty grams 
<laughs> every couple weeks about why do you have those two companies together? Well, because they both care about conservation. You're more than welcome to join us. And, you know, we, we still are small enough that some very large outdoor brands still kind of look at it as like, oh, this is just a way to fight us. No, that's not the case at all. We would love to have them on board. We would love to uh, see them rocking the brand, but also the dedication to this is a long-term goal of ours. And we're not just saying it for ourselves, but we are putting our skin in the game alongside our competition in the market space to support conservation. We will get there. Oh, yeah. Um, there may need to be you know, some adjustments and people retiring maybe at, at some places to make that happen, unfortunately. Yeah. But at the same time, if hunting is going to survive, if fishing is going to survive, and if the wildlife and fish are going to survive, we need to be having a culture change. Yeah. You might have already answered my next question for you, but as I was driving up here, I was kind of thinking of what to talk to you about. And one thing I wanted that I, I know how I would answer this for myself, but if someone were to ask you on the street, Jared, why does the world need 2% for conservation? We already have these people, you know, mm -hmm. donating time and money and whatever. What would you, what would you say to that person? There's, there's a couple reasons. Uh, reason number one is that it is something that is measurable for people to hang their hat on for uh, the why and the how of, of what they do. Um, something measurable not just for the businesses to, to again say, uh, you know, for within their company culture, but then also with the nonprofits that they support. Um, or for if, if they are going up against legislation that may uh, be in impotence to hunting and angling interests, um, it's, it's a measurable and attainable standard for anybody, an individual or a business. Um, the other thing would be that it, we, we, need, we need a culture shift to where everyone who partakes in the outdoors is giving back. Um, we were talking before we started this about how hunters and anglers have for a long time hidden behind their license purchases and their equipment purchases and s calling themselves conservationists because of the excise taxes on them. Right. The Pittman-Robertson Act for, for hunting, uh, which, which pulls money from hunting licenses, um, firearm and archery sales, um, and then the Dingle Johnson, which does the same on the fishing side. Right, yeah. Um, people have hidden behind that for a long, long time. And the fact is, is it, it's, you're a conservationist by accident. And if we were to try to introduce these excise taxes today, which provide the majority of outdoor, you know, fish and wildlife funding, if we were to try to introduce them today, culturally, they would not pass. They simply would not. And they passed, yeah. the Pittman-Robertson passed uh, at the uh, you know, tail end of the Great Depression when people were, were poaching for food. Um, those of us who grew up in poor parts of the country with families below the poverty line know what that's like. Uh, for many of us, it's why we give back. Um, as some kind of penance for that. <laughs> so maybe Pittman-Robertson was penance for what people knew that they had just done to the buffalo. Right, yeah. Uh, as far as on a national scale. But um, 
if it were enough, Ducks Unlimited would not have been founded the year after Pittman-Robertson. I believe National Wildlife Federation was founded the year after Pittman-Robertson went through. That sounds about right. I'd have to 1937. check. 1937. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then the state chapters came, you know, year after year after year after that. And, and same on the fishing side. If it were enough, there would not be the Tarpon Trust. Right. Yeah. Or, or Trout Unlimited or Walleyes Unlimited or all these different groups. They would not exist. And that doesn't even count the small, like, uh, the muskie behind you on the wall. I won as part of a kid's program within the Packerland Muskie Club back in 1999, which was a program to get families out fishing and, and getting giving money for, for muskie conservation. You know, that stuff wouldn't exist if the excise taxes were enough. So 2%, what our goal is, is to get everyone thinking this way. So that outdoor TV is not just big, sexy books. You know, right. um, or or you know the biggest fish, or you know it, it's stories about what we do as hunters and anglers to give back. Uh, that's part of why we uh, did the first conservation media award this year, uh, which we opened up to people who wrote books, articles, had podcasts, radio shows, TV shows, short films, photography, whatever. But it had to be focused on, on fish and wildlife conservation, not just on selling product or on uh, selling certain outfitters or things like that. Right, yeah. Uh, but focused on conservation, focused on future, maybe of a species or a region or something like that, and then something that the general public could digest. And so this year, uh, Jason Matzinger, uh, for his project, uh, Project Elk, won. Uh, we're going to be opening that up again this this next year for more projects, but we want to see outdoor media shift too, not not just with on the industry side, and we want to see it not just with endemic companies. So you know the camo companies, the supplement companies, the tent companies, the backpack companies. We don't want to just see them signed on, but we want non-endemic, your pressure washer companies, your breweries, your plumbers, your contractors, engineers, screen printers. Um, we don't care what you're making in your garage. You know, we would love to see you come on board so that ultimately this is something we see everywhere. Yeah. You're a musician, an artist. We don't care. It needs to be part of our culture because right now, uh, this week right now, uh, outdoor retailers going on in Denver and a long standing contentious point between the, what is called generally consumptive. So hunting and fishing mm -hmm. outdoor recreators and what is often called non-consumptive, though it is actually pretty consumptive, of, yeah. of hikers, climbers, uh, bird watchers and whatnot. Um, a long-standing rift is the hunters and anglers go, well, we pay for everything. Yeah, because you're forced to Yeah, by the tax. And if even the outdoor retailer folks can't get behind a backpack tax to help fund fish and wildlife conservation and habitat, I guarantee you the hunters would not right now either. Yeah. Um, so we want to make a shift from within and then invite people to, to, to join us yeah. in that. Yeah. I think you hit the nail on the head with your comments about being an accidental conservationist. I know a, a couple of people that come to mind right away who actively work against good sound, good sound, solid uh, conservation efforts and they still buy guns, mm -hmm. they still buy ammo, mm -hmm. and they're accidental conservationists. They're funding the very things that they're working to tear down. 
yeah. which I mean, I appreciate their funding, but they are not, they're not conservationists. And so oh. I agree with you. This, this shift needs to take place. Um, cause there, there's a, a limited, there's an expiration date in all this. Yeah. The, there's an expiration date on the, the outdoors that we get to enjoy now if we sit by and do nothing. And I think the only, the only way to accomplish what we, what we need to accomplish to make sure all of this stays around is there to be that culture shift that you talked about. Yeah. And I, uh, I, I hope that that shift continues the way that's going. Cause I think there is a really good shift in the culture, but we need people like to present for conservation, uh, making that happen. So, uh, kudos for getting that, that culture shift going and, and helping keeping it moving around, moving along. It's, um, there's a reason why our brand colors are purple. Um, which honestly, like when I, when I first saw the logo before I was hired or anything, I was like, come on. <laughs> Cause from a design perspective, like purple is hard. Um, and it's purple. I mean, you're going to get hunters to wear purple. Come on. But they have. Yeah. Um, and there's a reason purple is, is nonpartisan. It's, yeah. it's, it's, uh, it's a voice of, 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 you know, conservation is bipartisan. It, it's not, or I should say it's nonpartisan, <laughs> not necessarily always bipartisan. I gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, it's, it's not owned by one side or the other of, of anything. And we have members outside the U S we have quite a few in Canada, Mexico, South America, Africa, um, Europe. We don't have any in Asia yet. Um, they're all over the place. So it's not just us issues that we're, you know, kind of tackling. Uh, but you do often see one side or the other trying to claim different issues within conservation. And, and within that you see conservation groups trying to claim that they are the best right. at different things from time to time. Yeah. Um, or actively fighting against each other in printed columns, things like that. We are Switzerland as far as it pertains to conservation work. So, in us not taking funds and distributing, we also don't really discriminate how people put their time. Um, I may not personally volunteer with certain orgs because I don't enjoy or don't have access to certain types of, you know, like the tarpon trust guys. I don't live, I'm, I'm thousands of miles from a tarpon. Right. Yeah. You know, but I care about what they do um, down there. And, uh, you know, we have businesses that support groups like them that, are totally landlocked up in Canada, but they are giving two groups down there because That's they, cool. and, and to, you know, um, bonefish and whatnot. And we have folks down in Florida who are giving to like the elk foundation, um, because they care about those different things. Um, we, we want to see people with a broad knowledge of what's at stake. And if we can help make that happen, we'll, we'll do that. But our, our mission is to really support the work that's already being done and to help keep people engaged and get more people engaged with the work that's being done. Because relying on a strong man kind of mentality of if I elect this person, they're going to fix all my problems does not work no matter which country you're in. Yep. Does not work in Europe for the hunting and angling opportunities there does not work in South America for sure uh, because of the things they struggle with down there. Um, and here in North America, we've been dealing with it in our faces big time 
uh, for the last 12 years or so yeah. of whatever side you're on, thinking that if you elect someone, they're going to fix all of your outdoor woes. No, no, they're not. But the conservation groups just might. Yeah. And in many cases have. Well, and in my opinion, the conservation, the North American model of conservation is one of the greatest kind yeah. of we the people movements that's ever happened. Because like you mm -hmm. said, it came about at a time when, you know, it really probably wasn't the smart economical thing to do. I mean, they could have taken that money and done a lot of other things with it. But yeah. everybody got behind it, and I mean, I'm sure there were some people who didn't, but the majority said, yeah, this is what we want to do. We want to leave these lands mm -hmm. and these this, this wildlife, you know, to future generations in perpetuity. And so it only makes sense that if it's going to continue, it needs to be a movement of we the people coming yeah. together and saying, you know, this, this still matters, yeah. and we still care about these kind of things. So there's a, a mental shift that you can see some folks make. Um, I went through it, uh, myself when I realized what was at stake. Um, you know, there's, it, it's the title you give yourself. Uh, and, and that really dictates kind of what you do with your time and your money. Right. Is yeah. the title you give yourself and what causes you stand for or fight against. And there are a lot of hunters who are hunters first and not conservationists first. Absolutely. And, and same yeah. on the angling side. And these are the guys on the angling side, they're typically okay with bucket biology where you go and you grab a rock bass or a smallmouth and you put it into a stream because you want to go fish it there and it wipes out the you know initial population yep. that was there. <laughs> on the hunting side, you, they're the guys showing up with dump trucks full of corn in a CWD area where it's proven you know, uh, you're, you're going to get some CWD vectors out of doing that kind of thing. Yep. Um, it's where you have guys who are part of certain industries that actively hurt wildlife populations where they've been told by their bosses, you need to fight this one bit of legislation that uh, these supposed environmentalist hunters who aren't real hunters are, are trying to kill. Um, and, and you buy into your, it's, it's not that you're ignorant to, to issues or that you're um, necessarily an evil person. It's just that your title, who, who you see yourself as, um, is something that is not conservation first. And it's not looking to the future first yep. for the things that you love and enjoy. And there's some folks who, who just need to be honest with themselves on that. And I needed to for sure. When I moved out west, um, I was of the mindset that all the federal land needed to be transferred to the states and maybe privatized was the best option. Hmm. Yeah. That's a pretty major, that's a pretty major shift to go from that to vice chair of the Montana chapter of backcountry hunters. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, yep. and yeah. And was publicly advocating for that. And the reason was, is I came from a state where, uh, you know, Wisconsin, where you called the DNR don't know rutten. Um, okay. Yeah. Huh? Yeah. Uh, and where your knowledge about fish and wildlife conservation came from conversations at the local tavern. Um, yep. Seen where a few of those. You saw your public land spaces just get absolutely wrecked uh, because of different things, it, but where you saw private land like being really well managed because that's like all there was. Sure. Yeah. You know, uh, it would be like someone from Texas showing up out 
you know, in another Western state where there's all this public land and just being like, whoa, you know, that was, that was kind of the, what I was seeing. I saw forest fires and stuff and brush fires and floods. And I was thinking, you know, we, we got to do this. We got to do that. And then I found out about, you know, oh, if you transfer federal land to the states, every state has in its constitution that if that parcel of land is not making money, it has to be sold. Well, how do you make the money off of it? Oh, if you do that, then, you know, you're going to be kicking the wildlife off of it. So the very opportunity you're hoping to make better, you know, and it, and it changes very quickly. So I went from thinking one way to the other once the facts were directly in front of me in my face, once I got outside of my bubble. And... Uh, same went for a lot of wildlife conservation things. There were a lot of things I had in my mindset that, frankly, were water cooler conversations that had been put as fact in my head, uh, despite what good science or, or what, when I would go out and experience it firsthand, would show me. Yeah. Um, and a, a lot of folks have that experience, and a lot of folks need to have that experience. So if we can get the the two percent brand in front of people, the you know it, when you buy a case of Mountain Ops, it has the logo on it. It makes you wonder what it is. Right. Yeah. And then you go to the website and yeah, start doing or, some research. You know, if, if if the word conservation is in front of you enough, I know it's a dirty buzzword in many parts of the industry because people are making a lot of money off of it. Yeah. You know, we support conservation. It's really funny the guys who are making a lot of money off of it uh, with their ads and stuff. I give them a phone call. And they kind of run. <laughs> right, yeah. Because <laughs> then they'd have to put their money where their mouth is. Yeah, yeah. in contrast to that, this morning I uh, got a phone call from a pretty large outdoor mapping company that's signing on. They have a pretty popular app for knowing where property boundaries are. I wonder who that could be. I wonder who it could be. Um, I never called them. I, wanted, I, I finally quit calling people, and I let them call instead. Because if I have to call them, it's probably not part of the culture. They called, and they are raring to go. It is 100% a part of their culture. See, that makes me like them even more. That's Right, and they're not the first hunting map company we have certified. Huntera is a member right now. Yeah, I saw Um, that. That's cool. Yeah, and they have donated a mountain to groups like QDMA and and others. Um, So... uh, you know, as as more people see that logo in more places, it makes them wonder what they're doing themselves. Yeah. And it was it was when I finally was kind of called out by someone up on the Rocky Mountain front, or like, well, what are you actually doing other than just you know being a slacktivist on Facebook? You know, I started to figure out who was really doing the work. Right. And okay, I need to be given back if there's going to be a future. So if we can make more of those aha moments happen, I think our future is pretty bright. Do you have a a story of someone that really stands out to you that became a member of 2%? Business or individual? Either one. Just somebody or an organization that stuck out to you that... Yeah. So uh, one that one that sticks out pretty, uh, I, I would say prominently, would be 406 Brewing in Bozeman. Uh, if you live in Bozeman... And I've been to 406. You probably met the owner, Matt Muth. The guy's got like a big, uh, like Zeus style beard. <laughs> um, he's extremely generous with his space, with his beer, and with his time to conservation groups. Um, and 
before I took over 2%, I assumed he was going to be certified quickly. Uh, because if there's a pint night to be had in Bozeman, he's giving his space. If there's a portion of proceeds to go back, he's giving back. And he, to be clear, most of his clientele are, are people coming down from like Bridger, uh, Bridger Mountain Ski Area. They're, they're not always hunters and anglers, so it's not, he doesn't have Blaze Orange sitting in his face all the time. <laughs> you know, or, or, uh, you know, fishing products sitting in his face, but he cares about fishing. Um, uh, he loves to fish guys got trout tattoos all over. Him. That's cool. Um, and he, he was our first brewery to come on board. Now we have, you know, more that are interested. And the funny thing about breweries is the main ingredient in beer is water. And if right. your water tastes like shit, your beer is going to as well. Oh yeah. I know this coming from Wisconsin. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I've got no love for the Milwaukee, <laughs> but uh, New Glarus. Now you got my attention. <laughs> but uh, you know, it, he he was enthusiastic always for every conservation group, and with certification though, he was kind of like, I don't know if I deserve it. Like, dude, if if a, if there's a brewery that does, it's a no brainer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so he's one that really comes to mind on the individual side. Um, it's really fun for me to see different names come in and it's, uh, you know, cause I get every single email right now. Um, we're getting to a point where maybe I need to have someone else see every single email that comes in, but, um, seeing different folks get certified who I happen to know are business owners, um, in different parts of the country that I've ran into or who I have often seen volunteering their time on Instagram or whatever and being an advocate before they ever got certified being advocates for years before they ever got certified for many people, they don't want to kind of show it, you know, they don't want to brag. And we're trying to tell people, no, you need to let people know that you're doing this baseline because maybe it will get them to do it too. Yeah. Um, those, those always stick in my head when That's I cool. see one of those. When you said something that sparked a thought, I would, I'd be willing to bet that most of these, at least the companies and probably most of the people are giving way more than oh, yeah. 2%. And oh, I like that you yeah. called it a baseline because that's what you want to establish. You want to establish that baseline, yeah. but most of the good folks who are, are really passionate about this kind of stuff and, and where it's in their culture and in, in their personal ethos, they're going to do a lot more yeah. than that 2%. Yeah. And the bulk of them, the ones that I know personally are blue collar. Yeah. Uh, drives me up the wall when I see someone with a platform, whether they be an elected official, a bureaucrat, own a very large uh, business in a large industry or whatnot, call conservationists and people who care about habitat, um, lack of a better word, the environment, when they call them elitists. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to call him out on this, but Secretary Zinke uh, uh, released the thing calling people elitists not that long ago. Yeah. And so did Senator Danes here in Montana. Uh, I believe called uh, MWF an elitist group. Yep, in he did. <laughs> and uh, a friend of mine, uh, Tom Healy, he's on the Montana board of BHA. He lives up near Kalispell, responded back. He's like, this is what I make per year. This is, this is my living situation. I grow, I have a garden because, you know, food costs money. 
I hunt this many days a year because again, food costs money. And, you know, I live in this way. You, in contrast, have all this money, all this, you know, and you call me the elitist. Um, see it happen, go back, going back to titles of, of people, what people call themselves. Um, when you have regulations come up regarding, you know, we're going to close down this trail to motorized use for this time of year because there's elk calving going on or the, the goats have their kids or the sheep have their lambs. Um, and you see what people say as far as like, oh, the elitists are shutting it down. The bulk of people who I see actively taking stands on certain wildlife issues are below average income in the, at least in the West. Yeah. Uh, same with coastal regions. They tend to be below average income. The folks who call the other people elitists are the ones who can afford three four-wheelers, a big truck with the trailer for all those four-wheelers. The snowmobiles can afford the big jet boat that they want to go ripping down through a, a walleye spawning area. Yep. Um, the ones who want to rip up certain streams uh, during duck season in, in these you know $10,000 boats complete with sound systems and whatnot. So, you know, we... we see a lot of name calling <laughs> going yeah. on like that and it can be a big distraction uh but my experience has been the people who are giving back the most are blue collar often below median income in the u.s but are passionate about fish and wildlife and the places that they're at yeah and if i can encourage anyone to do anything just do what i have you know made myself do is when you see someone instead of like putting a label on them like that just stop being a dick yeah <laughs> get to get to and know them get to know them and see how you can help out yeah um you know if there's a public meeting or or a, a chapter meeting for an organization maybe you don't know or maybe you think is against what you do go to it and sit and listen yep you know um conservation's not a competition and if we're going to get anything done, our our tribe needs to be bigger, not more segmented. Yep. Your uh, your comment about the elitists, it, it reminded me of this really cool interaction I had. I went to meet with this gentleman uh, who I had heard through, kind of through the grapevine, mm -hmm. um, spent a lot of time in one of the wilderness study areas that's being hotly debated here in Montana. And I just wanted to kind of get, because I'd never been to this area, and I mm -hmm. kind of wanted to pick his brain about the landscape and what he thought was important. And just really went in with kind of no preconceived. I wasn't wanting him to say anything particular. I just wanted to have a conversation with him mm -hmm. and, and get his feedback. So um, I called him, and he was like, hey, can you pick me up? For We were going to go to lunch. He's like, hey, can you pick me up? And I was like, sure. Like, yeah. It was kind of like, why is he asking me to pick him up? So I went to his house and he had a very, very modest house, like maybe, I don't know, like square foot size. It was, it had two bedrooms, you know, very, very small, older ranch style house. And I was like, didn't think anything of it. Um, gets in my car, we drive over, he orders like something really inexpensive. I was really kind of surprised at, at what he ordered. It was like a grilled cheese sandwich or something. Yeah. And I'm starting to pick up on that he's like really like he's retired. Um, he was telling me about his grandkids. He was saying that he wished he could afford to go see him more. And I was starting to pick up on that he's this older retired gentleman. 
in his early 70s on a really fixed income, doesn't have a lot of, you know, extra money to spend on things. We started talking about what kind of recreation he does. He's like, oh, I just love hiking everywhere. He's like, I, you know, I hike back into that wilderness area. Mm-hmm. And he's like, I was like, well, what do you do back there? Like, do you hunt back there? Like, what, what's your recreation? He's like, you know, I just see how many of the flowers I can name, you know, how many of the trees, how many mm-hmm. of the plants. And he's this really well um, educated naturalist now that he's retired. He just has made it his kind of his goal to just, you know, like yeah. be able to, if he's walking down a trail, look over there and tell you like all the plants right there. And I asked him, I was like, so what do you think should happen with this place? Like, would it be easier for you since you're, you know, you're older, would it be easier for you? And would you prefer it if you could take your four wheeler back here? Or do you think we ought to leave it? Like, what are your, what are your thoughts on this landscape? And he kind of sat back and he thought about it. He's like, you know, he's like, I'm really grateful that I can still hike back there and it's still quiet. He's like, but one of these days I'm going to blow out a knee or I'm just going to get too old and too weak to go back there anymore. And he's like, and I don't want it to change a bit. Mm. He's like, I want someone like you to go back there and see it just the way it is, you know, 30 years down the road. And, and that really hit me, um, for two reasons. Uh, one, I understand that wilderness and, and its management is very controversial and it's a complicated topic. And, um, that's a whole nother rabbit hole that we won't go down, but just his, his comment that, that he had had his time back there mm. and that he wanted other people to be able to experience the same thing. Even yeah. if that meant at the expense of him one day, not being able to go see it anymore. I found very inspiring. It was a very kind of selfless statement. Yeah. The other thing that struck me was here's this man that's on a fixed income that is going back into the backcountry and still experiencing it. And he is not elitist. He is about as far from elitist as you can get. He was showing me his equipment. It is all this old stuff that he picks up at yard sales and at thrift stores. And so when I hear people say that the backcountry is this, you know, elitist playground or the King's forest or, or all these different things, it really, it, it really upsets me because I, I've had the same experience that you have. The people that, that care about these places and that use these places are not, they're not the elite. The elite are paying to go to some dude ranch or they're paying to go to some resort like that is that's where the elite are going and they often yes yeah quite often you're right i'm i'm speaking in general terms but yeah i i agree with you 100 percent that that there is um that these good kind of salt of the earth people are in this community and and that was what drew me into this community is i wanted to be more like these people that were selfless that were, were kind and giving and opening and welcoming. And it's, it's really interesting to see, uh, those types of people really gravitating to this conservation community that, that you guys are helping to, you know, make happen. It's something really cool to watch. Yeah. Um, you know, the, and, and it's something cool to, to see people when they first start hunting and fishing to see them uh, have it be a part of their mindset from the get-go too. Because a lot of us are having to make a shift to it. Um, you know, uh, we've been hunting half our lives and and now, you know, we realize we need to give back. Or or maybe, uh, like so many of the folks I've spoken with, you, you had some uh, legal indiscrepancies 
um, when you were when you were younger uh, with fish and wildlife, and you feel like you know you're paying some penance back, and that you're, right. you're helping future generations have a chance. But it's really been cool. I, I teach hunters ed here in the Bozeman area, um, which by a little plug for that, if if you hunt, teach hunters ed. Uh, average age of a hunters ed instructor's got to be in the late fifties. Uh, most who quit, it's literally because they're dying. Yeah. Because they're so old. Yep. Um, and they're, uh, despite a hunter drop in many parts of the country, uh, in the Rockies, hunter numbers are up. Um, anyway, uh, but one thing I, I see with uh, many hunters at programs and with the kids and adults graduating out of it is a strong conservation ethic uh, because it's part of the conversation. It wasn't when I was 12. When I, well, I was 11, when I took hunters at um, I have no recollection about conservation being part of the class. I do remember ethics to some degree, um, but hunting as a conservation tool, I do not remember that. Um, here in Montana, uh, we get the book Beyond Fair Chase. Put Such in, a great it's, book. It's an amazing book, and it's a quick read, too. I mean, that's a tree stand or, or deer blind read <clears throat> or drift boat read, you know. Yeah. Um, Another one is uh, uh, Taking a Bullet for Conservation, by Pos both are by Posowitz. Yeah. Uh, read that one up on a goat survey a couple of years ago. But uh, we have Beyond Fair Chase in every single book. And there is one day of Hunter's Ed class that is conservation and ethics. Um, for me, as an as a early instructor, I've only been doing it for a few years, it was surprising to find out that not every class has that. Hmm. There's, I thought it was every class. That's no, interesting. Not mm. not every class across the country has that uh, because it's ultimately left up to the instructors. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. So on the instructor end, we've got some work to do. And it's not just hunting, but on the fishing side, we've got some work to do. I love fishing because it's kind of a gateway drug to the outdoors. You can live in a pretty urban environment. Yep. Uh, if you've ever seen what happens when the salmon come through Puget Sound, I've heard. Seattle. I heard it's pretty awesome. Yeah, like, well, dudes actually get shivved, you know, <laughs> on, the, <laughs> on the piers. But, uh, you know, everyone, I mean, they take off work. They, you know, they're out trying to get these fish, you know, and it's on every coast. It's in every town. There is some old dude fishing on a bridge somewhere. That's true. Um, there's some young kid with a bobber on a bridge. It's a gateway drug, you know, yep. to the outdoors, even in an urban environment. But with that, there's such little information out there about the efforts being done to provide that opportunity. So we have a lot of work to do. Yeah. But the future is looking brighter as people start to kind of wake up and realize what we have. Uh, there's a lot of garbage that has come from the advent of social media. You know, people having, you know, uh, 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 buck envy, you know, fish envy, uh, everyone trying to, you know, sit as far back and hold with as tiny a <laughs> finger as possible the animal or fish that they got so that it looks bigger. Uh, that problem has obviously blown up. Uh, the negativity, you've got these guys with Instagram pages where they just rip on people. Yep. And it's very popular because, you know, it makes you feel good for half a second because you feel inadequate in some way. Um, there's a lot of that garbage out there, but there's a lot of good, too. Um, people sharing special places, special experiences and letting people know, yep. I mean, even, you know, the, the department of the interior has a, has an Instagram page with 
thousands and thousands of followers were people living in condos in you know million people cities can see what they own and and see what they are responsible for uh, they may not get to go there in person but they can appreciate it and know that they're putting money towards it and we yep. want to see that happen with conservation as well that when you go and you buy a product you are giving back uh, when you go and buy from a certain brand or your or when you hire your local plumber and he's got that two percent sticker on it you know that at least one percent of that job that they came to do at your house is going to fish and wildlife conservation so with that thinking about that what's your hope for the future of two percent like where do you want to see it one day we want you to be able to go into any store and see it on a product and that's going to require as you know as as more companies get bought up and you know more more uh you know conglomeration of things that will become more challenging mm-hmm. in, in some ways um but we want you to go to your local brewery and see the we give back sticker on their door when you go in like you can in Bozeman right now um we want you know to have your plumber show up and on the back of his truck is the we give back sticker there we want you to buy a product somewhere in a store and see that logo on it. Um, we've got another brewery coming on that's going to be putting the logo on their cans. And so you'll start seeing that across the West. That's everywhere cool. Everywhere they distribute. Yeah. Um, we want it to be everywhere. Um, the thing with a standard, though, is it's not like you can buy your way in. Right. Yeah. I've literally, in the last week, had two people ask what they would have to pay to not have the one percent of time no way yeah oh you can i thought they were the first time it ever happened to me i thought the guy was trolling me (laughs) he owned a a hunting magazine and he called up it was a small one uh but uh he he called up and he was like yeah so that hours portion yeah i'm not much of an outside guy what what are you doing? And so, I mean, folks may not know this, but there are a lot of people who make money off the outdoors that have no interest in it themselves. It's a lucrative thing. You know, um, it's it's one of the biggest economic drivers in just about every state. Every state, outdoor yeah. recreation is typically in the top five yeah. economic drivers for that state, unless you're like Rhode Island or, you know, something like that. But this guy was literally like, what what amount do you require for us to pay or, or can, you know, is there a way that I could make it, you know, just be a donation? Like, are you kidding me? And the two in the last week were individuals hmm. who they weren't old first off, you know, cause that, that may be someone's caveat. Well, maybe the guys were, you know, just physically in cape. Even I, you can be a Walmart greeter at 80. Yeah. You know? And there are conservation projects like banquets and whatnot, where you can sit there and check people in and you and I both know, that's typically the age range of the people who are doing that. We had somebody with a slip disc work yeah. our banquet and yeah. he was in so much pain, but we found a job for him to do and put and him to work. he wanted to do it. Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah. We want to, we want to see an opportunity for everybody. Everybody has an opportunity somewhere. Conservation groups will take time and dollars all day. Right. Yeah. You know, um, especially the time because they know what the dollar amount is on that time. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is something that anyone can be doing. So we want to see as many businesses as possible in the, in the world, not just in the U S but in the world involved. Um, and then we want to see individuals giving their time. 
because really the you know we we can't verify it you know it's it is honor system for the individuals sure but those volunteer hours are huge so on the business side the dollars are huge obviously the donations uh for the nonprofits, but the individuals it's the time that's huge yeah um one percent of income for you know that many people is is awesome um uh, but those that one percent of time for that many people is often worth more to the to the nonprofits and to the causes so um yeah that's that's what we want to see we want to see it everywhere i love it just take over the world two percent on everything that would be awesome if we could get everybody everybody contributing back just a little bit i mean it makes such a huge difference yeah and and we are meant to be in the background you know you're not going to see us uh we we are doing a conservation convention here in bozeman next summer cool the summer solstice um but it's going to be the nonprofits that are there that are going to be front and center um and, and that's you know the goal is to move volunteer hours and funds to them and to hunters ed programs and to big brother big sister programs where you take kids fishing and to scouts programs and we want to move things that way so we will always be in the background we're not the main dish we're seasoning (laughs) we hope that that. we hope that you order the meal (laughs) (laughs) so um you know we want to be everywhere but it's a it's a background kind of thing cool so I like yeah. that. So if folks want to get involved, fishandwildlife.org. Cool. And is that across all social media? Where can people find you guys? On? 2% for conservation. On We're not really on Twitter. Um, we do have some stuff coming up on YouTube soon. Nice. Um, yeah, we're doing some more media-related stuff this year instead of uh, me flying to every single trade show known, known to uh, man, woman, and child. Um, so YouTube will be coming up, but Instagram and Facebook – uh, Instagram predominantly is where you can see what's, what's kind of going on. Sweet. Um, but yeah, fishandwildlife.org If you're a business or individual is where you can get involved. And we are not entirely up to date on there with all the businesses that are on board. Um, and, and we have a member map that's coming up and whatnot. So we have updates that need to happen, but with any nonprofit, the website is usually like the most important thing to update, but also the last thing that gets updated. Yeah. Well, it's because you're out there busy doing good work. And, yeah, we were, yeah, we were at Total Archery Challenge, you know, Thursday through Sunday. Yeah. And um, at some point, you have to see your kids and your wife. and They were there with me. That's oh, one nice. thing we, we really try. Uh, and it was important to us before doing this that they be involved, not just for their sake, but so that other adults who have kids see that, hey, their kids could be working on this too. Yeah. Um. So, you know, don't, if, if, if you're going and volunteering your time, don't leave the kids at home. And if you can start young, do it because you try to start with a teenager as a teenager who was, you know, whose parents started trying to take him to things. It's tricky. You (laughs) might get a little pushback. When when I was a teenager. Yeah. yeah, It was like, uh, but there's no girls there. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But, uh, you know, start young and, you know, we, we want to have our, our whole family be a part of it because that's the way it should be. Yeah. You could really be about name of sports team, Mm -hmm. you know, or you could have your family be about something that actually matters. Yeah. That's going to make them quality human beings down the road. Yeah. Yeah. And this is, this is where, you know, we, we don't want to be judgy, but on this, I will, uh, look at how you spend your family time. Yeah. I, I Uh, think that, 
that needs to be said more. A lot of folks say they want to give back. And, and the only reason why I say this is a lot of folks say they want to give back, but they just can't seem to find the time. Um, how you spend your time really is indicative of what you care about. Yep. And, uh, you know, an average hunter and angler spends up to 6% of their income on new gear every year. <laughs> and yet one in 10 hunters kills an elk. <laughs> right. Yeah. How does that work? <laughs> which, which are, I, I think our, our business members would also, you know, even though yeah. it's <laughs> like, well, yeah, you, you should, you know, if you were out there volunteering your time, uh, you know, getting rid of noxious weeds or something like that, you might find out where the elk sleep. Right. Yeah. Uh, there's a reason it's, it's, it's not just, you know, good conservation karma that improves people's odds. It's they're actually out there doing the work. So they know, Right. Where I got my elk this last year, uh, last day of general season, because again, I had just taken over this job. And so I was working more than I was hunting, which I found out you lose a lot of street cred when you do that. Uh, <laughs> but where I got my bull last year, uh, it was a migratory route that had just opened up because of a big fence pole that we had done with our, with the local RMEF chapter. And the elk had not traveled that route in like 30 years. We pulled the fence and it took a couple of years, but they were there. They figured it out. I wouldn't have known that if I hadn't been on that stupid fence pole. So, yep. you know, um, uh, yeah, uh, people complain about not having enough time. Be honest with yourself. Have an adult conversation with yourself. Yep. And then get your family outdoors doing something. My grandpa always said that people make time for the things that they truly care about. Yeah. So I agree with you. Do some, do a little soul searching and see where you're putting your time. Yeah. And that's what you truly care about. And if you you can change that. Like you can yeah. change how you allocate your time. That's, that's very doable. Yeah. So I agree with you. And there's uh, something you see often in, in any industry. Um, maybe one spouse is really into something and the other's not. So this whole, like, you know, hunters having this and, and anglers like my wife won't let me go, you know, or the, and, and there's a bunch of gals who are probably like, oh, we fish and hunt too. You know, the, this rift between, spouse it's an excuse it's it really is it is and i guarantee you that rift is not there for the families that work on conservation together yep the reason why i know that is because at the banquets at the pint nights the ones who are there together volunteering their time and their money together both get into the thing that they're doing that for yeah if you go and you try to do it by yourself um and this goes with or without kids and with or without a, a spouse that, you know, or, or significant other who's really into hunting or fishing, if you're going and volunteering that time by yourself, it's going to make it that much harder for them to understand. But if you can bring them into that thing that you're passionate about, it will become a passion for them too. Absolutely. Uh, my wife did not grow up hunting or, or fishing. She drew a really nice muley tag this year. Nice. That's exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but the, I mean, she was volunteering for conservation for years before she even took Hunter's Ed. So um, that's a little encouragement and uh, marital advice. <laughs> <laughs> we, I, I really, one of the things I want to do with this is I want to get a whole bunch of couples together and yeah. do just like a podcast on how do you make hunting work in your relationships. Oh, man. I think that would be really interesting. Yeah, because you always hear like just the dudes sitting there talking about like, well, your wife's awesome because she lets you. Yeah. You know, uh, yeah. Yeah. That I, conversation needs to happen. I think I need to figure out a way to make that happen. Yeah. yeah. We'll, we'll help with that. I would appreciate that. Yeah. 
Well, I got a couple rapid-fire questions for okay. you as we're winding down here. Um, the first one is, what is an action everyone should take right now? And that can be in any phase of life. But uh, Join a, no- a nonprofit that's doing something that uh, helps something that you're passionate about. Um, so passionate about access, join an access org. Passionate about fishing, join the fishing org that fits it the most because then at least you'll be getting information of ways that you can give back absolutely and to your point there uh, people talk all the time about oh i don't know where to go hunting i don't know where to go fishing i've learned a lot of my hunting spots from people that i volunteer with who that's a dirty secret but yes yes uh yes because it's true for me too yeah yeah uh no i mean you just meet good you yeah. meet good giving people that are willing to help you out. Um, the kind of person yeah. you want to hunt or fish with. Yep. You, exactly. you learn real quickly what kind of person you want to sit in a drift boat with <laughs> or, or, you know, go sit not in a deer stand, but you know, on a ridge and glass, yep. maybe a deer stand doing that kind of stuff. Absolutely. Easy way to find out what kind of, you know, if they're the kind of person you want to be doing that stuff with. And usually they know way more than you do. Yep. And that's, that's that's the other reason is you want to become a better hunter yeah hang out with some of those people that have been doing it forever and that are passionate about it and you'll learn you'll learn a lot yeah um let's see here do you have a favorite piece of gear that you would recommend out in the field yeah um my i'm not a big uh gear advocate i used to write reviews and stuff so i'm super cynical about like any piece of gear Mm mm-hmm uh, but I absolutely love my seek outside teepee and stove. Cool. Took them on a goat hunt. Um, we take it as a family. Super lightweight for how much space you get. Bomber for weather. Have had it in snow, massive heat. I've had it above 100 degrees and below zero. Really? And absolutely love it. Cool. I'm, st- I'm still in the market for a backpack that I love, which here's the funny thing with running a certification org companies will offer you stuff and you have to say no. Right. Yeah. Like I don't have to, it's not in the job title, but like, let's say one of our certified backpack companies whose logo is on the cup that you're drinking out of right Mm -hmm. now wants to send me a backpack. That's unethical. Right. Take that. So I have to go about it the way everyone else does. Same with discounts. Um, go about it the same way as everyone else. So that, that tent I got, as a life membership uh, 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 token from BHA. Gotcha. So, um, you know, that's that Seek Outside is a certified member of 2% in part because they do donations like that for life memberships with nonprofits. So that's how I got mine. Nice. And I love it. What advice would you give to a new hunter um, or, yeah, what, what advice would you give to a new hunter? If you, gave, you had to give one piece of advice, what would that be? It does not take as much money as you think. That's great advice. It takes time. Yep. Um, The most successful hunters I know wear jeans and tennis shoes when they're killing stuff. For real. Yeah. Um, Yeah. (laughs) It does not take as much money. You do not have to draw a special tag for an opportunity. Now, some species obviously are locked up by that kind of stuff for as a conservation tool. But, um, if you want to start 
eating venison this fall, whatever state you're in, there are over-the-counter tags. You may have access issues that you need to work around, but those don't you don't have to lease property to get yourself a doe. Yep. Or to for for waterfowl or or, or like you don't need a duck to go waterfowl hunting. Or or, or or a dog. You know, you don't need a dog to go waterfowl right. hunting. Yeah. You don't you don't need one to go upland bird hunting as well. I shot most of my grouse without. You 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 literally need a firearm, which you can find for pretty cheap pretty usually. cheap yeah uh, you can find a bow for pretty cheap on craigslist especially right now with all the new models coming out everyone's trying to dump them you can get into hunting and fishing for crazy cheap especially if you join a nonprofit. another plug this way like you were saying all these experienced folks a lot of them have extra gear and i know from personal experience folks are will share folks will take you folks are excited to have someone new to teach the goat hunt that I was on with that, with that tent. And to be clear, I didn't see these questions beforehand. So <laughs> that goat hunt was not mine. It was with a 73 year old guy who had drawn his, drawn his fifth goat tag and put up on the Facebook cool. BHA group of, do, is there anyone who can go and help me pack out a goat if I get one? Yeah. And he let me come with him and taught me everything that he knew about goat hunting. I may never draw a goat tag, but now I know. Yeah, I know exactly where to kill them and where to put in for the tag because we watched 40 of them come out of the woods all at the same oh, time. That's so cool. And sit on a seep, and he sat there 10 yards away from him with his longbow and got to pick the one he wanted over the course of a couple weeks. That's cool. Which he then shot with his longbow at 10,000 feet. How old was he? 73. Dang. Well, I think he was 74 by the time he shot it because it was <sighs> month-long season. So. That guy's a badass. Yeah. That's cool. And he volunteers a mountain of time to conservation groups, and that's how I met him. Karma is real, folks. Karma is yeah. real. Yeah. Um, yeah, I learned that. I learned that lesson this year with. So I drew a, a limited entry Utah elk tag, mm -hmm. which I was not planning on, and so it's a little bit of a financial strain. But yeah, because when it happens, you gotta you gotta go. You gotta go. Yeah. yeah. So, and it's probably not something I'll ever draw again. So I was kind of like, well, like, all right. So yeah. most of my budget went towards the tag which was fine and then it was kind of one of those things like okay like i am going i'm going to need not want i'm going to need this list of things yeah. to make this happen um as i started thinking about that i was like i i can't afford to buy all this stuff so i simply just started reaching out to people and people have stepped up in an yeah. amazing way and and hooked me up with their equipment to borrow and that doesn't mean that you walk around with your hand out as a new hunter saying, can I have this? Can I have this? Can I have this? Yeah. But if you really need something like work is letting me borrow their wall tent, I've got three or four different friends letting me borrow coolers, yeah. like those kinds of things that I really do need to get the meat back safely to shelter myself with yeah. like those kinds of things that, that are needs people are stepping up with. And to that point, yeah. In the last year I have had that experience way more than I had because uh, you know taking over this suddenly now everything is conservation groups right you know um and I I was still working another job up until a couple weeks ago uh to help pay the bills because conservation also doesn't really pay no, it does not <laughs> <laughs> um and, and you know was was still working you know like proper 40 hours with that on top of these 40 hours a week wow but with that aside you're with all these different groups and all these different people and uh, last year, my elk, 
I had two friends who I met through conservation work help pack out my elk. Now, one of them's been borrowing my pack raft this spring. He was using it for turkey hunting and bear hunting. Nice. You know, and then I've been, you know, we were, we were driving uh, up until a couple of weeks ago, just this little Corolla everywhere. Like that was my, that was my elk hunting rig. <laughs> I'm not even kidding. Like I've been up down in the Madison range elk hunting with that thing. And people nice. be like, you're going to haul an elk out with it. Yes, sir. I am. I am. Um, I'm from Wisconsin. I have, I have hauled mule deer across the state up on its rack with like blood dripping down the window. That is awesome. <laughs> but uh, I love it. Uh, you know, it, so buddies with trucks. You know, and, and going out with them doing that and, and ran into a guy up in up in the Snowcrest who was elk hunting, uh, and he let us stay in his wall tent with him. Total stranger to me. Had never met me before that day. And he's like, Guys, it is snowing hard. You're gonna stay in our wall tent with us and we were gonna, you know, go bivy camp. You know, um it's an incredibly giving community. It's cool. Um, and people who really wanna help you out when you have those crazy weird opportunities that come up out of nowhere or if you're just starting out who really want to see you succeed yeah because if they're giving back to conservation they're not thinking about themselves nope no pretty selfless folks i got two last questions for you uh one is what is the thing you're most excited about right now regarding just the thing on your mind that gets you up in the morning that you're most excited about i love this job a lot like it is hard for me to stop at dinner time at night. And often I don't, and you know, that's breaking some family rules and stuff. <laughs> but, and my wife's excited about it too. So she's not exactly, she's kind of an enabler. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but we gotta, we gotta be careful, you know, cause like they, they say kids who's, you know, grow up in, in uh, like, let's say like a, a pastor's home tend to hate the church. I mm -hmm. don't want my kids to grow up in a conservation home hating conservation so right i gotta be careful with that but I, what i'm most excited about is you know we we're growing by at on average an individual member a day right now sweet which means those are people who are actively giving back one percent of their time and one percent of their money to conservation who are asking to get certified every day uh we're growing by a business you know once every two weeks is kind of our our pace right now though we have paperwork from dozens in the hopper it tends to take people a little while to track down everything they've ever given back but what i'm most excited for is the culture shift that's happening like it is intoxicating just absolutely intoxicating to see it happen yeah um f like I, I drew kind of a fun elk tag this year nice. I, I drew a fun muley tag as well it was supposed to be a points building year and that didn't happen yeah <laughs> but i'm not thinking about them yeah. which I know is weird. Um, I, I've got friends who have awesome tags. I had a friend um, draw a buffalo tag his first year here in Montana. I heard about that. That's yeah. pretty cool. Yeah, and he's from two certified businesses as well. Actually, a lot of certified businesses had people draw tags this year. Yeah. Or or like the first light guys uh, at the Sheep Foundation, less than one club thing, like three of their people. Uh, or, or two of theirs in like another certified business, uh, drew at the less than one that. raffle. Yeah. yeah. It was ridiculous. Yeah. Right. It was cool. <laughs> it was like <laughs> we were owning like three quarters of the less than one drawings. We're, we're 2% <laughs> certified businesses. So the karma is real. Uh, but my wife also drew, uh, it's her first year hunting this year. She, she passed hunters ed last year during archery season. Uh, but this was like her first year really getting into it. And she drew a fun muley tag. That's like cool. A really good one. That's awesome. First year. 
Um, so we're actually thinking about doing like Thanksgiving in the wall tent. Nice. Uh, out doing that. for like That would be cool. Yeah. And I've, I've actually met a lot of people in the conservation community who have done Thanksgiving out somewhere like, or, or done like a major holiday that way. And so we're thinking about doing that. But what, what's got me most excited is the trend in a positive direction. That's cool. So, so I think you need to one up Jason Madsinger with your Thanksgiving Turkey wall tent camp. You know how he does his Turkey wall tent camp. I did not know. Oh yeah. 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 They just did like a video. He does like this big Turkey wall tent camp. You guys need to do Thanksgiving Turkey wall camp. Yeah. 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 Well, we're, we are taking the wall tent out because it's going to be cold, you know, where we're going. I'm not going to say where she drew the tag, but, um, it's, it's a combination like desert and mountains. Nice. I will say that. Cool. Um, and it's her first one. That's exciting. And there are people who want like, you know, let's do a film about a, you know, no, no, you, you don't need to do that on the first but one. We will be inviting friends because That's we cool. always, we always end up with, you know, the Bozeman area is a lot of transplants. Mm-hmm. Um, the joke is you live here for three months to three years, but you will leave. Yeah. <laughs> uh, for those who have stayed longer than three years, you know, we do, uh, you know, have them come over for Thanksgiving. This house is usually just full of people from all different States and stuff who are single or young couples or whatever, who can't make it back to their family somewhere. Well, we're going to try to do that back country this year. That's cool. So we'll see how it goes. We That'll may end fun. up burning down the wall tent with the deep fryer or something, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Or she might tag out a couple days beforehand and we're just sitting there eating venison. I don't know. That would be cool. Yeah. Yeah. So the the question I always ask everybody, um, have you seen the movie Jeremiah Johnson? Yes. Okay. So the scene where he finds the guy frozen in the snow Mm -hmm. with a gun, Mm -hmm. uh, that that scene always has stuck with me because it's like that pivotal point in the movie where he, you know, makes it over the hump and he's going to make it and he becomes a mountain man. Um, Anyway, the the thing that always that always gets me thinking about that pivotal point is what the guy writes mm-hmm. and it's I, it always cracks me up. But the question I want to ask you is if you were there frozen in the like freezing in the snow dying, yeah. what would be the last message you would want to leave to the world? Huh. So I've had this nearly happen twice. Okay. <laughs> um, the first time I recorded a video on my, and this was on a flip phone, recorded Gosh. a video on okay. my flip phone to, at that time, girlfriend, who's now my wife, saying, I'm sorry, you were right. I shouldn't have done this. <laughs> I hope you have a wonderful life. <laughs> Not even kidding. I still have the video. (laughs) Um, Uh, The second time I wrote it as uh, my phone was dead and I wrote it on the, on the back of my, my tag. Um, and it was the same kind of message. Like, I'm sorry. I, this was pretty selfish. I shouldn't have been up here, um, doing it like this. So that's, that's as a father, that's kind of where my mind goes is like, you know, I'm responsible for you guys. I should have been more responsible with how I'm being out here. Um, but as far as like a last message to the world, yeah, leave it better than you found it. Um, because that's something anyone can do. You really can. 
doesn't yeah. matter your income level. It doesn't matter your status in your community or how busy you are. You have a choice. You can change what you're doing. Um, a lot of people feel stuck in dead-end jobs. You can quit. Yeah. You can give up everything and quit. But again, it comes down to what you're, what's important to you. And having known, I've, I've been fortunate to meet many people who gave up very lucrative ways of life, uh, high-profile ways of life to do what mattered to them all over different corners of the globe. Um, you can. So leave it better than you found it. Awesome. Jared, I just want to recognize you for all the, the work you do. And I think you definitely embody that idea of leaving it better than you found it with your work for 2%. And, and then obviously what you do in your personal life, it's pretty incredible. So thank you for everything you do. You have any other final thoughts you want to leave us with? Folks want to get certified as either as an individual or a business fish and wildlife.org. Cool. Fish and wildlife.org. All right. And that'll, it's all there. Go do it, folks. It's well worth it. So thanks, Jared. I appreciate it. Thank you. Well, friends, another podcast is in the books. I hope you all enjoyed this one as much as I did. Jared is a fascinating individual, and I really enjoyed our conversation. Do me a favor and go to fishandwildlife.org and become a member of 2% for Conservation. The work that they're doing is very important. We only have one world to live in. There's a limited amount of public land left out there. And if it's not for people like Jared Frazier and 2% for Conservation, then the places that we love and cherish and depend on for a healthy and vibrant lifestyle will soon disappear. So go to fishandwildlife.org, become a member of 2% for Conservation, and make this world a little bit better by giving back. And until next time, folks... Make life epic.